If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the first chapter of the book of John. Over these last several Sundays, we've been looking at the prologue of John's gospel. And in this, we are introduced to Jesus Christ as God Almighty, our maker, our total Lord and total sovereign of this world, that all things were made, that life is him and life is given to us, that, there's, that the light of Christ shines on all men, regardless of whether they accept him or not, that he shows himself to be himself, and it does not matter because darkness runs when the light shines. So as we look at this, we are then, last week, came to verse 14. And verse 14 says the most amazing thing that's ever been uttered in human language, and that is that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. That God eternal, God almighty, God Jesus the son of God became a man. There was a time when he was not a man, but now and forever he is a man. When we see him, we we will see a man. That is the most ridiculous thing to most people, to think that there is a man that is our maker, that he became like us, that he might allow us to become like him. And that is eternal and in bliss. Uh, All things that he earned are given to his people. So the second part of that verse is where we're going to look today. So verse 14 says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see here John saying, There was a glory about Jesus an unmistakable glory that came out of every pore of his. And it was, it was not what was expected. Even if you thought God would come to earth, you would not expect the glory in the same way we saw it. So he's talking about himself. Verse 15, he pulls back John the Baptist, saying that John is testifying and that John the Apostle is testifying to the same Jesus. So this is now John adding his voice to John Baptist's uh, proclamation that this is God's uh, Messiah who is to come. John the prophet was, was prophesying of him in real time, not in future time. John was the only prophet that could say, behold the Lamb of God and point at the Lamb of God. He wasn't pointing 500 years into the future. He was pointing 500 yards over the field to Jesus who was standing opposite them. And And then John adds that all I can do is testify to what I have seen, and I saw his glory. And so we see that this glory is full of two things. And then this verse John says, his glory was full of grace and his glory was full of truth. Now, these are are themes too big to talk about. These are monumental themes this could, be, this could be discussed in high detail for all of our lives and not exhaust it. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is truth? And what does it mean that Jesus Christ is grace? And what does it mean that it's his glory that shows these things? That's what we'll try to look at today. So we just read in the scripture reading today that it, it pleased the Father that all fullness would dwell in him. That's what Miss Rhonda read, that all the fullness of God would dwell in this man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has always been God, 
always. There was never a time that he was not God. There was a time that he was not man. And that has to be very clear, though people will giggle under their breath. That has to be very clear that he became a man. And when he became a man, God said, it is not my will that you should change your being. You are still the same that you've always been. So when you come to be a man that you might die for men, you will be God. And you will be God the same as you've always been God. So it pleased the Father that in him all fullness, that means that Jesus was not part man and part God. There was no amalgamation. He was 100% God creator and 100% man. And that is a mystery that I would scratch my head and say, sorry, don't, can't explain it. All I know is that he was not some kind of a weird mishmash. He was God come down in human flesh, still God. Now, that means that the things that are true about God were true and are true of the man, Jesus Christ. All that was ever true of Jesus was true when Jesus walked this earth and is true now and forever, amen, will be true. But there was a time that God allowed Jesus to veil his glory. If you were to look into the Old Testament, and we'll see this later when we look at the comparison between the Old Testament law, which was a grace of God towards, towards men, and the life of Christ, which is a grace of God towards men, and there is a vast comparison and, and contrast we can make. When we look at that, we can see that Moses wanted to see God's glory. He asked to see God's glory, but he realized that what he was asking for would cause his death. Because you cannot gaze upon God, true God, and not be evaporated in, just, in, in the power of what that means. You can't say it's a pretend glory. To look upon God really would to end people. When Gideon saw the angel of God, he was like, oh, I'll never, I have to die now. When Samson's parents saw an angel, they were like, well, get, get your act together. We're, we're dying today because we've seen God. Pe- people could not deal with it. But you have people all throughout 30 years in a small dirt town that looked upon God day by day by day. And these men, as they were pointed to, you see the Apostle John, appointed to him by John Baptist, And they followed Jesus, knowing that the prophet is saying, there's your Messiah. And they went and investigated. And they said, where are you staying, Rabbi? And Jesus said, come and see. Come and see. What an invitation. Come and see me. Come and see where I live. Come and see what I do. And they followed him, and they saw him day after day after day. And John is saying, I know this is impossible to say, but this man is God Almighty, and I saw his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he veiled his personal glory. The personal glory that would simply be God, the glorious Christ, he had to veil. Nobody knew. Isaiah said nobody recognized him. No one thought he was of any significance. When you looked at him, you didn't say, what a wonderful guy. When you looked at Absalom, you were like, wow, look at the hair. What a handsome guy. He looks like he's from the 1970s. When you, when you look at Saul, you're like, wow, what a big, tall macho. What? I'd like to be like him. When you looked at Jesus, you didn't even think about it. You just looked on to something else because he was of no 
attraction. Nothing about him made you want him. There wasn't a gorgeous glow or a halo above his head. There wasn't anything that he did that made you want him. In fact, all men hated Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, all men hate me. The world hates me because I tell the world that it's wrong. And they hate me. So Jesus lived as a man, as a child, as a teenager, infinitely distant and whatever holy means, infinitely distant from all corruption, from sin and all of its almost sin, where you're getting away with it and it's still socially acceptable, when you're wiggling in your seat but you don't get up. Jesus was infinitely removed from that and it made people hate him. Nothing attracted you to Jesus. But there was something about Jesus' personal glory that you could not see because he veiled it. And, the, and his official glory as King of kings and Lord of lords has not yet been revealed. There will be a crowning day when those who pierced him will look upon him that they pierced and know that every knee will immediately bow. And it won't be out of forcing you to bow. You will fall prostrate before your king glorious in the heavens, knowing that it's Jesus that you're, that you're looking at. And that glory is not yet there. It would outshine the sun. So Jesus' official glory was veiled. But there is a glory that John saw that had nothing to do with, with who he was. It had everything to do with how he acted and what he did. Because Jesus didn't stop being God. He acted like God would act as a man. And that's glorious. For you to say, this is the way men were created to be. This is what man was meant to be. There is a glory there that Jesus showed through every pore. And John said, we beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. So we see that, that Hebrews saying that, that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. We didn't see the brightness. Though he is the brightness of the exact the exact express image of his person. You want to know who God Almighty is? Look at this itinerant rabbi. That is who God Almighty is. Everything he does is what God would do. Everything that God would do is expressed in how he lives. So when he hates the dirty joke, when he doesn't laugh at, at, at your overeating, and when he doesn't snicker when you, when you are saying that we're all human, when he basically he's just passive in that and he doesn't agree with you and you are uncomfortable about that. But at the same time, there's nothing that makes you want to be his friend. You have to realize that that glory is shining and the darkness can't comprehend it and the, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So as he started doing miracles, it does say in, at the, in chapter 2 of John, his very first miracle is the water into wine. His miracles are showing something to the disciples of his glory. It says that it's showing his glory by this first miracle, and his disciples began to trust in him. That there is something that only God could do, a creative act like turning water that never becomes wine. It's not like you wait long enough and water will become wine. He made something that was something into something something else. It was creative only the way God could do it, and most people would have missed it. The master of the, of the wedding missed it. All the guests missed it. They were all drunk anyway. It was, a matter of, it was a matter of nobody caught it. But some people said, 
Only God could do this. People with, that were prepared, people that were ready, could see it, and, and they started believing in him because he was showing glory. But it wasn't just in the fact that he was doing things that only God would do, like miracles. It is much more what I'm going to tell you today. It's how he did things. It's how he lived. And he lived in a way where he was abased. He knew how to be abased, and he knew how to be exalted. Okay, I, I remember this from, from Paul. Paul said this about himself. He said, I know I'm learning how to be low. I'm, I'm learning how to be hungry. I'm learning how to have very little. I'm learning how to be beat up, and I'm learning how to take it. I'm learning how to be low in other people's eyes. Because, see, Paul was never like that. Saul of Tarsus was, you know, the, the smartest person in the room, and he wanted people to love him, and they wanted people to call him awesome. And he, he's learning, he said. I'm learning how to be low. And I know how to be exalted. When God does exalt you, I know how to do that too. So there is, there is two things going on that I kind of want to co- comment on in just a minute. But when you say that his glory was full of grace and truth, see, in my heart, I believe in your heart, there's a contrast or there's a frustration. There's a competition. Are you a gracious person or are you a law are you more on towards law or are you more on towards grace? That's how we would all believe. I think that that's what a human would do. Am I more concentrated on this is, what, this is right, this is wrong, don't do wrong? Or am I more gracious? Oh, honey, well, you know, I know everybody makes mistakes. Do you see it? Am I nice? And because I'm nice, I have compassion. Because I'm compassionate, truth doesn't mean anything to me. Or am I harsh? And do not, uh, do not care that you're struggling with sin because right is right and wrong is wrong and you do right and you don't do wrong. Do you see, in our heart, there is a conflict, serious conflict, that you are either gracious or you're truth. There is either righteousness or there is compassionate gratitude or graciousness. Jesus had no conflict at all. He was 100% consistent in that he was always about the truth Never, ever in the dark, never, never in the spin, never in the make it feel one, make it feel better. He was completely true all the time, and it made people hate his guts. But never has there been a person that ever walked this planet that was more gracious than Jesus Christ. He only showed grace all the time. And you think, how in the world is it true of us? Because we're called to the same thing. You'll see that that's how I'm going to conclude we're called to the same thing. How can I be completely consistent with what God said is true, but at the same time only compassionate, only gracious to others all the time? It would take the Holy Spirit of God to do that in our hearts. It's a miracle because since the fall, we've never responded that way. None of us have. And it really would be a miracle. And that miracle in the life of simple Christians is enough to get people like John Baptist to say, that's the Lamb of God. Go follow him. And there will be people that will become Christians as the result of you simply living your life in front of this world, as you simply trust and point others to them. But as you live like Jesus, people will be mysticized because how in the world did anybody care about truth and at the same time show extreme grace?
This I've, um, psalm is, of course, one of the key, I believe, key verses in the Bible. This is from Psalm 85, and this is uh, two verses in the middle. Mercy and truth are met together. This is David writing. So mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In truth shall, uh, truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. So only in the cross, I actually have to say in the cross only, do we ever see mercy and truth being able to kiss each other. Mercy is when God is allowing us to not have the punishment required that his righteousness requires him to have. He must punish. If he doesn't punish, he's not God. So for him to show mercy to us means he's not God. From him to be only righteous means we will never be saved. But it's God's will that we be saved. That is something that took the most monumental thing that this world has ever seen. And that's the death of God the Son on the cross. There is nothing like it. Nothing at all like it. Because in it, mercy and truth have kissed each other. And it says righteousness and peace are met together. Righteousness is God's exact angles. So if you were to build a wall exactly like that one, exactly like that one, it would overlay that one perfectly, then it would be righteous. Righteous means every angle exactly the same, every proportion the very same. So when you say I'm righteous, you're saying God, God and I line up flawlessly, perfectly, exactly the same. Who God is, I am. That's what you're really saying when you say righteous, and that should make you swallow hard and say, positionally, I'm righteous. In Jesus, I'm righteous. Because Jesus lines up flawlessly with God the Father. So righteousness is not bending. It's not on a curve. It's absolutely true. But peace only comes on the cross of Christ. Because if God were only righteous and he measures me and my angles do not line up with his, there is no acceptance. I am not acceptable. But I have peace with God through Jesus on the cross. Now Jesus lived his life showing his glory of grace and truth because he knew he was going to go all the way. He was a faithful son, and he learned obedience through suffering, and he went all the way to death on the cross. So because of that, he lived all as if all was already done. He lived showing mercy. He lived showing grace, and he lived completely consistent with the truth, never ever bending, but always ministering, always serving, always stooped over to help in true love, in true compassion. And that in his, he never stopped. He, he, he completely, he ended disease in the whole land of Israel for three years. There was no such thing as anybody being sick. He healed everybody. He cast out demons that there was nobody diseased in their souls. There was nobody diseased in their minds. There was no one diseased in their habits and in their, and in their, their bondage. Because Jesus walked through like a lawnmower, mowing down everything in his path. But he showed nothing but compassion and grace. Unbending, still like God, still like himself, but totally in grace and in truth. So the first thing is that he is only doing God's will. I came to do God's will, not my own. And God's will is that God is exactly like God, and that true is true, 
True is true. That's what Rick said. Your truth is something I I just magnify over. I just can't believe it. Your truth that never stops. And it's not just your truth about something that happened in the past. This is true or it is not true. This world can spin anything into true or anything into not true. Things that actually happened, people don't believe happened. And things that didn't happen, everybody believes as having happened. Because you can spin anything into anything. You can make anything the way you want it to be. God doesn't play those games. What has happened either has happened or did not happen. And God does not hide you in your sins. God exposes with the light. And if you, as you love him, you will crawl out from under your log and into the light. And you're okay with it. You're okay with your real self. You're okay with your real past. God deals with you. And you must deal with your past in truth. But he does it in the most compassionate way that it can be done. He shows you that you completely accepted and you're completely loved and you're completely held. And then he forces truth in the most gracious way that can be happened. But it's not just the past. God doesn't just deal with true things in the past. God is dealing with true things now. What's true now? What is not true now? Because people are not just liars of past events. People are liars of true things now and not true things now. They call likeness dark and dark lightness. They make you think that this is happening that is right when it's not. They make you think that I'm this when I'm not. They've turned definitions on their heads. You make up your own definitions now because there is no floor in anybody's building. So true is not just what's happened in the past. It's what's happening now. And God deals in now real things. So the two things that I, that I saw in Jesus that I'm going to extract because how limitless. John said the books would never, the earth could not fill the books that could be written about what Jesus did. So I just picked one concept. And I said, the way God would want Jesus to live is low in front of the eyes of men, but conscious of his glory in front of God. And because, because I can go there in my own mind at the end when I say that this has something to do with me, that I'm low in front of men, but I know who I am in front of Jesus Christ, that God has forgiven me and he has, he has already given me all things. So I know that internally that I am positionally forgiven, saved, and will be exalted and glorified. There will be a throne for me. How on earth can I ever say something like that? There will be a throne for me. But at the same time, I know that in, during my life, I will be lower and lower and more despised and more despisable every day. So let's look at this. I'm just going to give you a couple examples, from, I, from mostly from John, because John is, that's what he's showing you. He's showing you Jesus in these ways. And so I see them from John, uh, these. So I wrote, Jesus lived out God's truth by being made very low. And I pulled from John 13. This is at the Last Supper. And he gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. Okay? This is verse 3. Jesus, knowing that God had given all things into his hand. Do you see my second point? He knew who he was. He knew what God had done. He knew that all things were given to him. He knew that he was the heir of all things. He knew his position as king of kings. He knew that there is no position in the universe any higher than his. And that God has done that and he will do it. So it's the same. He lived in hope 
And his hope is the same as, as truth, the same as right now, same as reality. And he lived there. He knew it, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was from God and went back to God. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going and he knew that God loved him and knew God was pleased with him. He knew the glory that he had before and he knew the glory that he was going to have afterwards. That's verse 3. Okay, look at verse 4. So that, that's my second point first. He knew who he was. He had a conscious understanding of who he was in front of God. Because of that, he lived his life in verse 4 first. He rises from the supper, lays aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. So Jesus served because he knew who he was. Because he was confident he could serve, and he served all the time. He, ser- he spent himself. He poured himself out. He, he ran himself down for others because he knew that he was the most exalted one. Now, that, that's stupefying. Jesus showed his glory that in obedience to God, he was degraded before men while retaining his complete consciousness of his glory before God. So I'm going to pull a second one. This is from Luke chapter 9. It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. So he was on his way to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He decided, I'm going to go suffer. He made a decision and he went and he put his face like a flint and he's heading towards his death. 52. And sent messengers before his face like a king. Jesus knew he was a king. He was setting his face towards Jerusalem knowing that he was a king. At the same time, he went towards his death because he was the highest of all high. There was nobody higher and he knew it. And because of that, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And he went into, now that, there, you could end right there. There's, there's both of my points. He set his face towards Jerusalem. That's being low as you could be to die on a criminal, criminal's cross. But knowing enough to know that he was the king that would send messengers before his face, like a great shah of, of the eastern countries. And it says, and he sent before his face, and they went and entered into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. The king is coming. They would come in, king is coming, get ready. And I don't know what it is. And would you, be, would you be embarrassed running through the streets going, the king is coming, and here's a bunch of half-breed Sumerians who don't even know who God is, and they're like, what are you talking about, crazy man? And it says, and they did not receive him because his face as though, uh, was set as though he would go to Jerusalem. They didn't receive him. They didn't care. They were like, who cares? Get out of here. Though, though he, was, he was a king acting like a king, they didn't do anything. Now, immediately, the teacher in me wants to say, what's going to happen next? What's next? Would he destroy the town? So 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, John, the one writing the sentence, said, Lord, will you command us to command fire down from heaven that we may consume them as Elias did? The disciples wanted to destroy the place. They should receive you. You are king. They should receive you like we've received you. Should we burn the town down? Should we call fire from heaven? God will answer you. If you say fire, fire will fall. Jesus says the most amazing thing, most amazing thing. This should be a memory verse in everybody's heart. But he turned and he rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. 
For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives. He didn't come to destroy you. He came to save you. Jesus could take rejection. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've heard stories of Jesus and it doesn't surprise me that he would do it. That surprises me that he would do it. That surprises me. Why wouldn't the King of Kings, why wouldn't he destroy me? Why wouldn't he destroy us all? They rejected him. He was going to die for them. And he, they rejected him and said, no, thank you, or not even thank you. And they were like, should we destroy them all? Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy men's lives. That is, he knew who he was, and he set his face on grace. He had glory that John looked and said, I don't understand. Because it was John that said, should we call down fire? And John wasn't being snarky. He truly thought, of all the times that we've been through, these people should burn alive. And Jesus said, you don't even know what spirit you're of. John, a spirit not from me is controlling you right now. I came to save men, not to destroy them. That he was able to be spent, not to spend, though he knew he was king. He sent out messengers like a king. He knew he was king and he was acting like king and he still took his rejection. And he took his rejection that he might be gracious. When he came into Jerusalem on that triumphal day, the Sunday before he was crucified, Psalm 24 is the, is the messianic psalm of all psalms. When Jesus was to come into that city, he was to come in through the king's gate. And this is, this is David writing about that event. This is David writing about it. This is Psalm 24, verse 9. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. As David, in his prophetic office, looked at the gate that he was looking at with his eyes, he was looking at the king's gate and realizing that he, the king, wasn't the king that that gate was meant for that it was meant for the Messiah who would be king of all kings. And he said, you're not high enough, gate. That gate's not wide enough. It's not high enough. The trumpets aren't loud enough. The colors aren't bright enough. The king of glory is walking through you. And when the king of glory came through on a donkey's colt, wobbling through the king's gate, the children were praising him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lord on the high. Glory to be the son of David. They were accepting his king. They were calling him king. And he was coming in on a donkey's colt like a king. The Gideon had a donkey's colt with all of his sons on donkey's colt. And it was a white colt of that had never been ridden. And it showed that he was the king. And Jesus was not being a farce. He was not making it up. He was the king coming into his country, into his capital city. And he came in, and the children cried, and the people cut the branches off the trees so that the, the, the hooves wouldn't hit the cobblestones. And they were like, glory to God, it's the Messiah. And the Pharisees said, restrain your disciples. They shouldn't say these things. And Jesus, who knew he was king of kings, said, I'm sorry. 
if I let them hold their peace, the rocks in the street would cry out because I am king. But do you know something? The next passage that I wrote down was Matthew twenty-one seventeen. At the end of that day, this was Sunday, he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and lodged there. He went to Lazarus' house and stayed with Lazarus. Why? There wasn't a residence in his capital that would accept him. The beggars in the streets, the, the poor, the nobodies would say, king, 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 king. And no one thought to usher him into a palace. No one thought to say, you have the keys to, this, to anywhere in the city. This is yours. You are the king. No, he had to go out of the capital and stay with friends because nobody accepted him. There was no room for him when he was a baby, and there's no room for him when he was pronounced king of the country because he knew how to be abased. But Jesus also knew how to be abound. He knew how to abound. This is from Luke 19, verse 37. When he was come nigh, even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude... I'm sorry, that was it. That was, that was the, the Messiah. Sorry, that was the one I just said. And he said, the stones, if they were to hold the peace, the stones would cry out. Okay? This is from Second Peter's, what I meant to say, Sorry. Second Peter 1, Peter was upon a mountain one day, and Jesus started glowing. That's all that you could say. He started incandescing like a light bulb. He glowed so that you could see it right out of his pores. He became like lightning. It would be like looking into the sun at its strength. And Peter was standing there looking upon the person he knew intimately well, and he glowed like the sun. He showed his glory. For a moment, that real glory of Jesus that was veiled, the veil was taken away. And there was such a cloud that everybody was on their hands with their hands over their faces. And when the cloud lifted, the only person they saw was Jesus. Moses was standing there. And Elijah was standing there. And they were talking about his death. They were talking about his purpose. They were talking about his office. It was as high as God Almighty was standing on that mountain as God Almighty going to his death for his people. And Peter didn't understand. These people didn't understand. And Peter later, as an old man, as a wise man, as a changed man, he wrote this in verse, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice from him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All he could hear, he could see Jesus glowing and all of a sudden a cloud and all he could hear was God saying, this is my son, I'm delighted in him. That's honor. Do you see, Jesus is not just low and low and low. He was low for us. He's always been high, and he knew who he was. He had no doubts about it. He was no, no, he, it was no, no strangeness to him to know who he was. But for us, he veiled his glory. For us, he came down the mountain. And when, when he comes down the mountain, immediately, someone with a son who falls into the fire and into the water and has epileptic seizures and he's unpredictable, 
please heal my son. Nobody can heal him. And your disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus said, how long am I going to have to put up with you? He immediately went back to work. He didn't, he didn't get congratulated. He didn't, nobody came up and said, wow, that was amazing. I can't believe you glowed like a light bulb. And he, he immediately went back to serving. That was what Jesus did. This is from John 20. Now, there's not a point here. You're going to have to take the whole paragraph and consider it. But I believe if you take the whole paragraph, you'll see exactly what I'm trying to, to, to express. All right? This is from John 20. This is after the resurrection. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in their midst and said, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. When the disciples were glad, they saw the Lord. Then the Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As my Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when, he, when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We've seen the Lord. But he said, Except that I see the hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then Jesus came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith to Thomas, Reach in hither your finger. Behold my hands. Reach hither my hand. Thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, Him, my Lord, my God. Jesus said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. Jesus rose from the dead that morning. He conquered the grave. He, he spoiled death. And nobody congratulated him. It wasn't about Jesus at all. It should have been the Jesus party of all Jesus parties. And every word out of everybody's mouth was about them. Everything Jesus did, everything he said, everything he showed was about them. It was their interests. It was not his exaltation. He came even as an exalted Savior, risen from the dead. He came grace. Truly he was God. Truly he was glorious. And no one said, Jesus, you're glorious, until Thomas said, my Lord and my God. That was the first worship that Jesus received in eight days after his resurrection because we're about ourselves. Everything is about us. We are so self-centered. We only have an inch worth of eyes. We only see to the end of our nose. And it takes a God of compassion to come to us. And in all truth, with never changing being God, he came and showed grace. He showed grace and he showed truth. The last one I'll mention is there was a lady caught in bed with a man, not her husband. I don't know where the man was. Double standard from all eternity, huh? The man somewhere else. The woman was there. Pharisees wanted a stoner because Moses said, it's wrong, this is sin, and you deserve death. So absolutely, truth was you deserve death. She deserved death. Truth is you deserve death. And they came to Jesus and said, what will you do? Because they were trying to trap him. So Jesus didn't say, no, let her live. I'm here to save people. 
And he didn't say, no, stone her because she's a sinner and sinners have to be punished. Do you see? He did neither. He simply said, you without sin, you cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped the rocks. He was riding in the dirt. I don't know what he was riding. If I looked over and saw my name with a list a mile long in dirt, I would drop my rock. But he walked over to that lady and he said, where are your accusers? She said, there's no one here. He said, neither do I accuse you. Go and stop sinning. Do you see it? He didn't stop in any way his sin, his truth. He was truth, truth, truth. And grace, grace, grace. That's Jesus, our Lord. This is from Titus. And I know that I told you I was going to point it to us. How in the world can I live totally unbending in the true things that God? You'll see churches fall. Churches will fall and fall and fall. And now it's, now it's going at 1,000 miles an hour. Everyone with every alternative lifestyle will insist, not just on being tolerated, but being absolute paraded, and you must accept them. And not only that, they need to be the pastor of your church. And they will insist on it. And the world will call us haters if we would ever say no. And it's funny because that's one issue of a billion issues. A billion, billion. And if you are saying, I must never bend. God said this is the truth. And you talk to yourself first. And when you see sin, you repent. And you must stand and say, no, it's wrong. It's wrong. But you do it with compassion until your last day, and you spend yourself on other people till your last day, till your last breath. This Friday, a ninth grader said, Mr. B, how can I tell my Christian parents that I'm an atheist? And I just said, help me, God. And I said, he said, they would be so, so crushed. And I said, well, he said, well, when I, when I came out to my parents, it killed them, and my dad wouldn't even speak to anybody for a week. And I said, he was in shock. He said, yes, but we're, we're back to normal. We have an, a good relationship, but I can't tell him that I, that I don't believe in God. And I said, I'll ask you one question. Is this, are you rejecting God because you know what you want and you're insisting on what, and having what you want? Or is this a conviction that you don't want to believe something that you don't believe in? And he said, he kind of paused and said, it's because I don't want to believe in something I don't want to believe in. I said, well, you don't have to tell him right now. I said, you're a child, you wait. You'll be an adult, and then you stand up like a man and you tell him whatever you want to tell him. But I'll tell you, it'll break their heart, but they'll never stop loving you. They'll never stop loving you but they'll, it'll break them inside. And I'll pray for you. That's all I said. So I think, did I bend on truth? No. Because I told him, I said, is it because the Christian God has expressly said that's not his will for you and you're rejecting him because you don't want to agree with his will? Or is it because you're believing that he's not, he don't believe that he's existing? That was truth. In grace. And that's all we can do. We live in truth and we live in grace until we're hauled out as haters.
and we will, will be hauled out as haters. There will be persecution that comes to us. There will be. But I want to tell you that the grace of God, 